Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schrodinger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a lovely five-star review and follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter. We're here to talk some more about recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take back into the office to help protect your organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Interesting historical fact, the first thing uploaded to the interplanetary file system was a triple. Our first article today is top five API security myths that are crushing your business. It's a very dramatic, it's almost a register level, but it's not snarky enough for register. Uh, this is from thehackernews.com. Uh, the article, uh, we brought this on because we don't spend nearly enough talking about APIs. Wait, and... did you just say you don't read the Hacker News? Like, <laughs> damn it, I did. <laughs> in the last episode? Well, this showed up in the Such RSS feed. I didn't actually go looking at Hacker News. <laughs> uh, it's funny, actually. Between Reddit and my RSS feed, I sometimes forget. If I read everything on the RSS feed or everything on Reddit, I'm like, where do I go? And really, the answer is turn off your goddamn computer. But... <laughs> lost. It's like wandering around. <laughs> so anyways, according to the article, these myths are widening your security gaps. This is making it easier for attackers to abuse APIs. And oh my God. they have some good discussion points, but we need to take this with a grain of salt. This is a paid article from a vendor called Indaspace. <laughs> yeah, terrible name. Well, I can't. Um, I guess the world is running out of names. Yeah, I mean, you see that every time you see a new a new medicine come out, you're like, really? The yeah, best I think their rival company that was in your face. <laughs> in our in, in dis, they're like in disface. In disface. <laughs> in your face. Anyway, so they sell API protection, pretty obviously. Although it'd be funny to see a paid vendor article from somebody that does nothing at all. Really. The veterinary <laughs> service. Yeah. All right. Myth number one. API gateways, existing IAM tools, and WAFs are enough to secure API. Well, of course they are. We're done. Boom. Uh, unfortunately <laughs> not. And what upsets me about this is that two of these things are not really enormously security related. So an API gateway, I went and looked, I had to look it up. This is part of why I want to talk about this because I don't know nearly enough about APIs. An API gateway is a reverse proxy. It takes API calls from clients and routes them to the correct API with potentially some protocol translation, monitors and provides some visibility. And there are API security gateways, but they watch north to south traffic. Although to be honest, for APIs, that's all you want, right? Like, it's funny. The article complained that the API gateways don't watch east-west traffic, but that's not the job of an API gateway. That's the job of like a network IDS. So anyways, that, I found that a little disingenuous. I think the fact that API security gateways only watch north-south traffic is by design. That's how they're supposed to work. Uh, second one, I IAM tools. So. Yeah. Second one, IAM tools, identity and access management. It's just account management for machine activities. It is a security tool, but it doesn't really provide a security function like the other items they're talking about. So I think this one's kind of a weird one to include here. But the last one, the WAF, the Web Application Firewall, that one, they are right on that may or may not be enough, but it is at least deliberately targeted at protecting APIs. Well, actually, that's not true. It's more targeted at protecting web applications, not necessarily APIs. So right. again, it's like this isn't even... I, maybe their point is that there is no security tool that is dedicated to protecting APIs. Now, I think what they're trying to say is that people are using all these different methods to protect their APIs when they should be using something more specific. So yeah, okay. None of them are such... really designed to actually protect an API. Yeah, stop being such cheapskate. <laughs> buy another lots tool. of money to buy our tool to protect your web gateway. <laughs> they should have just done that yeah. as the bluff, right? You know? Yeah. 
So the vendor claims that these tools are not effective in protecting against emerging threats. I'd say in two thirds of the cases, you're right. Like IAM and IAPI gateways aren't supposed to be protecting against emerging threats. WAFs should be, but as you just mentioned, WAFs are not really 100%. They're not really meant to protect APIs necessarily. So again, this is kind of a weird, I don't know, the way the article was written, whatever. I'm not a fan of it. I guess they're right technically and that none of these are supposed to secure API, but the way they write it is they're not enough to secure API. Well, they're not really designed to secure the API. They're shoving two un unrelated things into a single point and calling. And I could see if they, I, I can see their point. Like they're probably, like I initially, my initial thought was, oh, a WAF protects an API. Of course it does. So I can, there, maybe their point is that people don't understand. Or maybe a more accurate way to phrase this would have been something like people do not understand how to protect APIs and they're using the wrong tools. Mm -hmm. That would have made more sense to me. Right. Anyways, yeah, next number. Oh, sorry. I was say, yeah, I was gonna, just going to agree that their approach and the way that they formatted the article is not good. And I think I don't think they actually made a decent case. Well, it's actually thinking about that. The second one makes more sense now because myth number two is API security is simple. And again, like if you're thinking, oh, you know, I'll just throw my WAF in front of it and boom, I'm done. Then yeah, I guess there is kind of, maybe these are less myths and more misconceptions. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's right. how they should phrase it. In the API security is simple section, they cited shadow APIs and lack of visibility, which has nothing to do with whether it's simple or complex. That's an inventory problem. It has nothing to do whether securing an API is simple or not. And then of course, here's the quote, you need advanced upgraded API security solutions to prevent threats, which is, of course, FOMO, because you can't use your cheap stuff. You got to spend more money. Myth number three, developers will always bake security into APIs. This is not a surprise. It should never be a surprise. This sounds a lot like the cloud, the shared responsibility model almost, where you just assume that security is already built in. Yeah, I think the only people who actually believe a statement like that are college students in their Java class. They do mention, this one's kind of interesting. This one's actually kind of related to the WAF. They mentioned that static and dynamic testing tools at developer's disposal typically are not API specific, which is kind of an interesting point. And I want, makes me wonder if there are specific testing tools for API security and API development, but I don't know that answer. I'm not a dev. Yeah, that certainly should be something this company might want to develop then. <laughs> but the, the thing is that no one continually produces an API though. You know, that's not someone's bread and butter. They create an API to augment an existing piece of software. So I think the reason that most people don't do that is because it's not part of their core business to develop the API. Yeah. Yeah. Myth number four, cloud providers provide secure the APIs by default. Again, back to the shared responsibility model. They provide the service. You have to secure it. You're responsible for the data on it. And myth number five, zero trust is enough to secure the APIs. So they do have a point about some APIs who need to have a wide access by a variety of people. Zero trust will not work for because by design they need to be open. But it is not universally applicable. There's many APIs that are designed for one thing and there's one service or a few services that need to access them. Setting it up so that only one IP address or you know, a, a client that has a certificate is the only one that's able to access them certainly seems doable. This feels very analogous to websites. There's some websites you can restrict internally. You can, you know, secure via IP, secure via certificates, but then some need to be available to everyone. But the point is that you secure them differently based on their access requirements. So again, zero trust is not enough to secure APIs. Yes, that is factually true, but kind of misleading. Yeah. Hopefully they don't have to pay $26 million because of that. 
So it looks like their product service does these things, which is why you need it. I know, especially after reading this article, I haven't thought much about APIs. So I do appreciate this article forcing me to think a little bit more about APIs. And after reading it, my mental model for APIs now is that there is more thinking of them in a combination of software and website. For software, you have development requirements where you need to build the security in from the beginning. You need to keep track of it and consider it through the whole time. Whereas with website, where when you're building a website, that's usually, it's not built into the process nearly as much, although maybe it should be. And then thinking about in terms of websites for availability considerations, they both have security considerations and they both have different security considerations. So I do appreciate this article for forcing me to think about that. They're probably not wrong in terms of the conclusion, which is that API security is easy to get wrong. I feel like we haven't had a crux moment yet on APIs. Uh, like we have, for example, uh, there was that bank, Capital One, I think, that was breached via big cloud uh, misconfiguration issue a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. Software, there's been several, I mean, solar winds a couple years ago where software, like the, the supply chain, became turned uh, became on everybody's lips. So we, we haven't had like a crux moment like that where APIs were at the core of the breach. And I imagine what's going to happen is we're going to have a massive breach where an API was used and all of a sudden everybody's going to start looking at APIs and be like, oh my gosh, we haven't secured our API. Or it could be the core of the attack. Because mm -hmm. if you have an API open to the internet for a tool, it's possible that maybe that API could be, the, the API could be leveraged in order to utilize the tool in order to execute an attack. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, why does this matter? Well, presumably the reason you have an API is because there's important information behind it or some need to transfer that information. And what should you do about this? Well, maybe start thinking about those APIs before that big breach occurs. So if you're offering an API, you should probably be looking at how do you protect it? Who is using it? How are they using it? What kind of commands are they running to monitor it, You know, manage the user access, make sure that it, unless it needs to be, it's not just open to everybody, that type of thing. Well said. Ha! <laughs> Those were David's notes, by the way. So, All right. And the second article we have this week is interplanetary file system increasingly weaponized for phishing malware delivery. And this comes to us from Dark Reading. So I had not even heard of this before I read this article. But the interplanetary file system is a peer-to-peer -peer network for storing and accessing content in a decentralized fashion. So kind of like a, a BitTorrent file system almost. Now to participate in the, the IPFS, you can sign up to be a node and the nodes store the data that can be pulled by anybody else accessing the network. Now you can also access the network through public gateways. You don't have to run a node. And as we mentioned before or a second ago or in the title, this is being used now to host malicious sites and malware. Say it isn't so. Yeah, this is why we can't have nice things. It, it really is. Like everything, I mean, I, I get this tragedy of the commons and all that, but it seems like everything we do, every time somebody puts together something nice, it just all gets repurposed. Well, it's also part of the, the nature of producing something is that you do the minimal viable product. And that very often does not consider, you know, people don't, when they're producing these things, they don't do threat modeling against how can my tool be misused? This thing that I'm making be misused. That's not something that they're actually going through as part of their development process. That's fair. Uh, now, IPS nodes, DFS nodes can be host pages, like a HTTP URL. So naturally, hackers are using hosted phishing pages, 
which was reported by Spider Labs back in July. But this dark reading report is based on a report from Talos because they found malware droppers, disk wipers, and other information stealer type software in the IPFS. And because it's peer-to-peer, -peer, this is designed to be like bulletproof provider, which is just about impervious to takedown because once a, a thing is uploaded to the network, then it's replicated all over the place. So there's no one single place to take it down. The target, the, the way that this kind of functions is that the target URL is a hash of the content, uh, not a definition of the server's location or a directory or file at that location, because it could be anywhere on the peer-to-peer -peer network that is the IPFS. A user doesn't even know or care where the specific node is, where they end up getting the file from. And the relationship between the node and the hash is maintained by the IPFS gateways. And this is also basically, uh, at least according to what I was able to find, basically a no-cost way to host malware. It doesn't cost you anything to get anything into the IPFS storage. Uh, you spin up a node, you throw the file up there, and then you spin your node back down and you're done. Yeah, this is interesting. There's actually, I was looking at, there's somebody on Medium called Pinata that has an article on trying to calculate the cost of IPFS. And like, they don't provide the IPFS storage for free. They have pinata.cloud where they charge for IPFS. I assume they charge for their nodes. Like, you know, if you buy a gig, like they put a gig worth of nodes on and your stuff may be on theirs, but it may be on somebody else's maybe. I don't know. It's not like they're acting as an intermediary to get you into the IPFS. Maybe. Uh, but the one of the things that makes this difficult is you can't really block it the way that you would normally do blocks in a proxy or firewall, which is using the IP or the URL, because there is no static IP or URL for you to block in relation to a specific piece of malware or specific file, which is stored within the IPFS. Now you could block it by the file address or the hash, but the protocol, the IPFS protocol would need to be somehow in your tools in order to, to be able to I'd pull that hash out of it and, and to intercept it. I am <laughs> curious. I'm curious how many firewalls detect IPFS and if they can block them directly. I don't know. I've not, it, this is one of those things where I haven't heard any vendors touting this capability or even talking about IPFS either in either a new capability realm or in a, hey, we can prevent this thing kind of way. Yeah, especially since the first one came out several months ago. Like this is this article is not the first time. Yeah, well, it's probably because there hasn't been any high-profile attack leveraging it yet. Yet. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things I did notice is using the gateways are all browser-based. And the search, I found a IPFS search as well. It's all through the browser. So there's still an opportunity to potentially block this based on how they're pulling this down. Talked about a minute ago about whether or not the firewall can block it. So if they're using the IPFS protocol on the internet, you may be able to block it there on your network, sorry. Or once it, this is like we talked about the other day where, yeah, it's a new way of delivering the malware, but it still has to render on your machine. You still have to you know, visit the phishing page in your browser. It's going to show up and it's going to look like Outlook. You may be able to detect it there via EDR or some other method. If you're downloading malware via IPFS, sure, it's coming over in a weird new way, but it still has to run on your system. 
So they're able to dodge parts of your protection, sure. But if you're properly layered up like a parfait, they should still have opportunities <laughs> to catch it. Is that what a parfait is? I just know of a peanut butter parfait from Dairy <laughs> Queen. I'm thinking of the Shrek where he's like layered like an onion. He's like, no, like a parfait. Don't remember that one. Although Shrek was. And of course, because the IPFS is distributed, there's no central authority, you know, no company that anyone could go to and say, hey, please take this malicious thing down. At least some IPFS gateways may have protections to block malware, but not all of them. An attacker can just pick a different gateway in order to avoid that should they run into it. And the... One of the other troubles here is the unique identifier is basically just a random string of characters. So unless you know what you're trying to block specifically, you know, you know what that identifier is. You're not going to have any luck finding or blocking anything just based on heuristic. Now, the way that Talos says that attackers get malware into the network is you installed an IPFS client on their, they would install an IPFS client on their system. This could be, you know, with their own computer, it could be a compromised computer, could be someone else's virtual server, could be any number. It doesn't have to be anything, nothing special about the system, which they started from. They publish the file to the IPFS network and automatically that it gets, it starts getting propagated to other nodes within the IPFS network. They can then disengage the initial computer, which they use to upload the file with, even though that original computer is gone, that file, because it's already been replicated, the IPFS is in the wind and they're done. Uh, so they don't even have to stay connected to the IPFS network in order to ensure their malware will be maintained within, within it. Interesting. So there are search engines for IPFS. I found one and I, you know, searched a couple of things, searched passwords, searched sensitive. A couple of interesting things came up. I found one person, for example, is storing their email in IPFS. Not sure that's a great idea, but they'll never lose it for sure. <laughs> but everybody else will also have access to it. There also, this occurred to me, this would be a cool method of having, you know, like a spy, like safety file, you know, in case of death, putting something up there. So that's kind of cool where the password is released, you know, you know, 12 hours after you die or something like that. So that's kind of cool. Oh, um, body cam footage. Ooh, that'd be a good one. Yeah. I was actually, so the more malicious one I was thinking of is right now when attackers put up ransom data or release data, it's still only on one site, but if they put it up on here, like it would be almost impossible to get rid of. That Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, the Panama Papers, there's all kinds of things that rich people oh, everything totally that forget fish- about. Everything that WikiLeaks has ever released. Yeah, sounds like a good good place to start. See, so you could use it for good. Someone's got to pay for it, though. No, IPFS is free. We just talked about that. <laughs> Still got to pay for storage. All right. So what can you do about it? So the all the IPFS gateways, they do publish a list. So you could block the IPFS gateways at your edge. Currently... The likelihood that you're going to run into a business impact by that is probably pretty low. So if you can, you might want to implement that now before someone does stumble across a business use for it and then ask you to open it up because of that. And one thing I would say is that you are unable to block all the gateways. You you might want to find one that does do the malware analysis or the malware scanning and only allow access to the IPFS network through that one gateway. Yeah. I don't know if those exist, but I'd like to think that it does. If you need to use it for business, like maybe that's a service that a company could do. Yeah, you could outsource it to the pinata folks, maybe. 
Uh, we talked about if your firewalls are able to detect the protocol. Of course, it's wrapped in HTML if you go through a browser. But if they can detect it, you should be blocking it on your firewalls unless you have a business reason. And it would definitely be an interesting rule to look at folks trying to access stuff via IPFS protocol. So it should not be very noisy at all, I'd like to think. Yeah, imagine if they're somehow, they, would, they were somehow able to combine IPFS and Silk Road together. Oh boy. Yeah, you can never take down the markets. Oh my God. No, you're right. Somewhat the next Darknet market, the next big one, it's going to be a DAO. It's going to be encoded in the blockchain. It's going to have a life of its own. It's going to have all the trust is encoded into the contract and you run it on IPFS so nobody can ever shut it down. And you don't even have to have a Dread Pirate Roberts. Nobody has to own it. Yeah, we should probably write our predictions down and see what happens with them. Yeah, yeah. And then set up a token with that so that you have to use token as gas or something to facilitate the transactions. And then you use the token as the collateral. Or like, you know, if something doesn't show up, then you pay them out via token or something. Yeah, and which you never really have to do because the IPFS is, you know, designed to prevent that. Well, I was talking about the shipping part. I was talking about the like oh, when you okay, actually okay. ship the drugs or right, whatever right, illegal right. things right, you're right. purchasing in the dark web. Yeah, that way, because the problem right now is someone gets, someone has to, if you know it's seized or if there's a scammer, somebody loses money. Mm-hmm. But if you have a, if you're collecting like a half a percent or a percent on each transaction, you can use that to reimburse, and then set up some way of you know after X number of failed transactions, you get kicked off the thing to prevent people from taking advantage of that. Right. It's like shipping insurance. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> right. URLScan.io's source spot, chatty security tools leaking private data. So URLScan is a public website scanner. If you're one of the lucky 10,000 today, it is super useful. Give it a URL, attempts to visit it, renders the page that you see. This is very useful when you're working with potentially malicious links. You don't want to visit a malicious link yourself and URLScan acts as the proxy between you and it. Fortunately, that's awful big of them. It is. It's very nice of them. Just for free. I'm sure this is out of the goodness of their... Unfortunately, sometimes URLs themselves can contain sensitive information or they can lead to sensitive information. So for example, you may see credentials or information in the parameters that's sensitive. It may lead to shared documents, password reset pages, team invites, payment invoices, all kinds of stuff. And the problem that we are running into here is that many SOAR tools and enrichment tools automatically send URLs to URL scan for proxy. I've used SOAR tools in the past that automatically, because with a SOAR tool, what you're trying to do is you're trying to automate your analyst's workflow so they're expending as little manual effort as possible and they can focus on analysis. So, you know, you send it to URL scan, you send it to VirusTotal, you send it to Threat Intel, just everywhere you can. And this is a variation of already known similar issues with virus total and public sandboxes. This is a kind of a variation on Google Dorks where people upload sensitive documents that are accessible to Google search. So all this was, this came out, well, I guess this was really brought into the public eye from a data breach notification, which no one saw. So in February, GitHub released a, or sent a note to its users, notifying them of a breach of their their private repository stored in GitHub that had exposed user repository names and usernames. But there was no public acknowledgement from GitHub that this had happened. Uh, This was posted, someone posted their their notice from GitHub to Hacker News. 
But nobody reads that site, so it's fine. Well, obviously, no one heard about mm -hmm. it. I don't remember hearing about this back in February. Yeah, well, uh, I don't read Hacker News. <laughs> but the notice says that GitHub pages, GitHub pages sites published from private repositories in GitHub were being sent to urlscan.io for metadata analysis as part of an automated process. And to correct this, they restricted what URLs are being sent to URL scan so that only public GitHub pages would be sent. Yep. So this um, is an instance where their sort tool was automatically sending all URLs to URL scan to be analyzed. Yeah, and I imagine in this case, there's a lot of internal URLs. I was probably picking them up from, I don't know, maybe submitted emails. Maybe I was looking at network traffic. I don't know where it was picking it up from originally. But as I mentioned, what URL scan is, but URL scan has an API. It does over a half million scans a day. And it has an option to search through all historical data as an unauthenticated user. This one's a little different than virus total. You could, you know, search for a hash as an unauthenticated user, but you couldn't download the files. You had to be an authenticated user with a paid subscription to download the files. URL scans a little more free. They, uh, like I said, they're doing this out of the goodness of their heart. They have 26 commercial security solutions integrations, including Palo Alto XOR. They have Splunk in their Phantom Sim, Rapid7, FireEye, ArcSight, lots of built-in integrations. So if you decide you wanted to go searching for something, you can get more than just a screenshot. That may be the thing that most analysts use because with a quick glance at a screenshot, you can see, you know, is this phishing? Is it pretending to be outlook.com or whatever? But you can get more than that. You can get the submitted URL with all the parameters. You will see all of the redirects, which again is important for phishing. Frequently, the initial website is not necessarily the final website. Any other HTTP requests from the page, things like advertising links, tracking scripts, all IPs and URLs referenced from the page, the screenshot I mentioned, the full HTML response. There is some threat intel enrichment. Like for example, it'll tell you if it's a known phishing site that Google Safe Browsing is already flagged. And what's also really cool from an analyst perspective is how many other sites look like it. You can go in there and it will tell you, you know, there are other IPs that are hosting similar sites. There are other, other websites hosted on the same ASN. You can look and see if that ASN is hosting a lot of malicious websites. Hmm. You can see other websites that have the exact same structure, which if somebody used a phishing kit to set up a malicious website, it will tell you other websites that people have scanned that are set up in the exact same way. So it's super useful for analysis, but it is also super useful for going and looking at some of those things that we talked about. So the password reset links, account creation links. They found this guy, the researchers found API keys in the URLs. They found SharePoint invites. You know, those invites where you send somebody a link and the link says, you say, oh, I will only give access to whoever has this link. And you're like, ah, oh, that's pretty secure. I've only sent this link to this person. Well, if they're using a SOAR tool that's automatically enriching any and all links that come through the email gateway, now everybody has your link to whatever you sent. Well, so, you know... I was just thinking what you could probably do with this is if you knew an organization was using URL scan, you could request a password reset using a spoof email address hmm. and then wait for that password reset email to be sent and then <laughs> grab it from URL scan <laughs> oh, to hilarious. reset the password. Oh, you know what you could do is not even that. You could probably send a whole bunch of spoofed, like not just one, like send like 50 or 100 and then you get a whole bunch of accounts. Yep. And no one would know. Well, the end user would get the the email. Well, well, I guess what mm. I'm thinking is you do it off hours. 
Oh yeah. They would take them a while to be like, huh, why did I get a password reset? But most of those password reset emails say, if you didn't request this, just ignore it because it assumes that you're the only person who got that link. Right. Huh? Yeah. So even if they did, they might just ignore it. Yeah. That's interesting. That's real interesting. You always have the most devious. You're just like, ah, all right. You're definitely in the right profession, I think. But there is like a urlscan.io does have a live. I think we talked about this before where you talked about one of the places you worked had a live feed of like websites people visited and then they ended up taking it down because, you know, embarrassing stuff showed up there. So I don't think that was me. That was someone uh, else. Must have been somebody else. Yeah. Somebody else that was telling me about how the sock they worked in had a big monitor where they would show screenshots of all the websites that people visited. And then people, yeah, there was somebody that visited some inappropriate <laughs> websites. <laughs> oh, that would be terrible. Scan has the same thing. If you go there and you hit the live, it'll actually show you what everybody's searching right now, which is kind of cool. Okay. So what, why does this matter? Well, the security team, your job is to be securing information, but you might be leaking information and have no idea. Like we said, there are many sim similar issues here. VirusTotal, are you automatically submitting files to VirusTotal or are you just searching for hashes? If you're submitting files, anybody with a subscription can download submitted files. But let's give a hypothetical example here. What if somebody in your marketing department gets an email from an external contractor with the entire marketing plan for the organization and they don't recognize it and they submit it to Fishing Review yeah. and now your marketing plan was uploaded to VirusTotal? Or if it was a link to there's actually more likely a link to the marketing plan now, uh, now that may be on URL scan. So that's a, any amount of information this can happen to salary reports, sensitive data, you know, prop intellectual property, the secret formula for Coca-Cola. Right. I wonder if you could interject DLP into the middle of it. Maybe. Yeah. Watch what goes out via that. Probably. So this also happens with sandboxes. If you're using public sandboxes where the file needs to be uploaded and run, definitely something to look at. If you are using those, if you're using an online sandbox, look at your contract. And also this reminds me as well, have you checked your domains for Google dork issues? If you're not familiar with Google dorking, it is a, when people post sensitive files into directories or sites that are open to the public and don't realize it. This was Johnny Long popularized this back in like 2004, 2005 where you can search for things like site, google.com, type, doc, password, and it'll pull up any documents that have password in the title. So it's an oldie, but uh, it still checks out. Still relevant today, 15, you know, almost 20 years later. That's <laughs> awesome. Know, right? So what do you do about it? Be careful and deliberate with your automations. Oh, you know what? One thing that reminds me, one thing that I see a lot with the links is where fishers will put the email address they sent the link to in the link. So when you submit it up there, you're also putting your email addresses. I don't know. That's a real efficient way for attackers to harvest those, but definitely more. Anyways, be careful and deliberate with your automations, especially if you are using public services like URL scan or virus total. Thanks for listening to the Security Serengeti podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SerengetiSec and subscribe and listen on your favorite podcast app. I'm going to go there right now. I'm going to put my prediction for this dark web market on Twitter to immortalize it. Twitter where ideas go to die.